A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a History of Europe, Key Battles podcast, The Battle of Nancy of 1477, Part 3 of 3. If you haven't yet listened to Parts 1 and 2 of The Battle of Nancy, then now might be a good time to listen to them. But if you have already listened to them, or would like to continue anyway, then let's begin. Today's podcast covers what is known to history as the Burgundian Wars of 1474 to 1477. In fact, this was a series of scattered events in which Charles the Bold of Burgundy was the principal protagonist, attempting to impose his authority in different regions. For centuries afterwards, King Louis XI of France was portrayed as Charles's principal antagonist, albeit in the background, spinning a subtle web of intrigue to undermine Burgundian power at every opportunity. The Swiss, in turn, are portrayed as mere pawns in a game played out by the great powers of the time. These days, historians prefer to give a more complex and nuanced explanation of events and motives. Richard Vaughan describes how Louis was too occupied elsewhere to be able to devote his energies against Burgundy, and instead it was principally Bern and Strasbourg who persuaded the Swiss to go into war against Charles. Louis XI was, though, certainly active in his diplomacy. He signed up to an offensive alliance with the Swiss against Burgundy in the winter of 1474. The king was to pay them 20,000 francs a year, and an additional 80,000 francs if they were involved in a war without French help. This financial contribution helped persuade the less aggressive Swiss towns and regions to join the League of Constance. The first major offensive of the anti-Burgundian alliance occurred at the end of October 1474. The initiative came primarily from Sigmund of Austria and the Lower Union, but was supported by a significant contingent from Bern and other Swiss cities. An allied army, numbering perhaps 18,000, besieged the border town of Ericourt on the cold, wet evening of 5th of November. At first, the siege did not progress well. The weather remained cold and some of the Swiss troops were near mutiny, arguing they should assault the castle rather than slowly freeze to death in their camps. Eight days into the siege, a Burgundian relief army arrived, led by Henri de Neuchâtel. The Allies were caught more or less unawares, but quickly formed into battle order and advanced towards the enemy. Outnumbered, the Burgundians broke rank and were forced to flee. The Allies pursued them through a thick forest and caused many casualties. Three or four days later, the castle of Ericourt surrendered and the town put under the control of the Austrians. Charles the Bold would no doubt have been concerned as well as angry on the news of these events. 
The fall of Iroquois was not a very significant loss and occurred at a time when Charles was engaged in his own siege at a town called Noyes on the river Rhine opposite Dusseldorf. Among several options for military initiatives in the summer of 1474, Charles had decided that his priority was to help his ally, the Archbishop Ruprecht of Cologne, in putting down a revolt. The reasons for his decision and Charles's exact hopes for the campaign are not entirely clear, but most likely it was an attempt to extend his authority to the powerful city of Cologne and the Upper Rhine region. Charles's route towards Cologne led him past the town of Neuss, one of the centres of resistance against Ruprecht. Charles encamped outside the town on the 29th of July, 1474, expecting it to fall very quickly. Instead, Neuss resisted astonishingly well, in part thanks to preparations made in advance, as well as to the garrison of soldiers from Hesse, part of the Holy Roman Empire. Following several assaults in early and mid-August, the Burgundians captured a pair of strategic islands in the river by the town, though with heavy losses. Soon afterwards, however, a bridge to one of the islands collapsed, drowning many of Charles's Italian soldiers. Then, in September, a contingent of English archers employed by Charles, upset by the arrears of pay, began to cause trouble, and as Charles tried to calm them, they opened fire. Charles was unharmed, but a rumour spread that the English had killed him, and enraged Burgundians began to slaughter the English until Charles presented himself to his army. Despite the other problems that he had, such as the formation of the League of Constance against him and the Ford of Ericor, Charles stubbornly refused to give up on the siege. He worked tirelessly to keep up morale and to prosecute the siege, and it was a common belief that he slept fully armoured and for only a few hours at night. In May 1475, ten months into the siege, Emperor Frederick III slowly led an army to relieve the town. Charles met with Frederick and after signing a provisional treaty agreed to lift the siege. At first the Burgundian and Imperial troops fraternised, but then fighting broke out between the two sides. Sporadic fighting continued until the papal legate present at the siege threatened to excommunicate both Charles and Frederick unless they ended the fighting. This threat enabled the two monarchs to conclude hostilities without losing face. The siege was finally terminated on the 27th of June, 1475. The failure of the siege of Noyes was fuel for anti-Burgundian propaganda, but it made little difference to Charles de Bold's military potential. He had been checked, but by no means defeated. Perhaps the greatest damage done to the Burgundian cause was that the siege distracted Charles at a time when his forces could have been more usefully deployed elsewhere. The Duke's growing number of enemies took the opportunity to launch their own attacks. Firstly, as previously described, Austria, with the help of the League of Constance, captured Ericor in November 1474. Then, in January 1475, Bern attacked the region of Vaud, today one of the cantons of Switzerland to the southwest of Bern, and then a fief of the Duchy of Savoy. The Duchy of Savoy had recently come under the sphere of influence of Burgundy. Under Duke Amadeus IX, who was too ill to rule, his wife Yolanda assumed the regency. When he died in 1472, his wife Yolanda was able to maintain her authority and chose to ally with Charles the Bold. Charles' motives may have been to protect his frontier from French aggression, but he most likely entertained the hope that Savoy would one day fall to him. Either way, Bern felt threatened, especially in January 1475, when a treaty was signed between Burgundy and Milan. Together with their ally, the town of Fribourg, the Bernese began a private, undeclared war on Savoy, focused mainly on the Burgundian elements there. 
This campaign never had the support of other Swiss towns, but was essentially a war of conquest. In the first few months of 1475, Burns successfully captured all several strategic locations and towns in the region of Vaud, including the town of Granson on the southwestern tip of the lake of Neuchâtel. Charles faced yet another problem in the spring of 1475, when René of Lorraine broke his recent alliance with Burgundy and declared war on the Duke, apparently as a result of the depredations of Burgundian troops in Lorraine, which Charles was powerless or unwilling to stop. Louis XI somehow persuaded René to change his allegiance to France, perhaps with the help of requests or threats from the League of Constance Powers, or perhaps because of René's growing distrust of Charles de Bold, who quite likely had plans for the outright incorporation of Lorraine into the Burgundian state. René was also encouraged at the same time to declare war on Burgundy by the Emperor Frederick III, with whom he signed a treaty on the 17th of May, 1475. The most serious attack on Charles' territories took place that same month. On the 1st of May, 1475, the very day of the expiry of Charles' treaty with France, Louis XI launched a major offensive against Burgundy, on three fronts simultaneously. The French king must have been aware of the various distractions which occupied Charles at the time, and wished to take full advantage. It was not an attempt at conquest, but a campaign of destruction, like the type of chevauchée employed by Edward III in Normandy in the previous century. Villages were burnt down and crops ruined, with the aim of weakening the enemy and encouraging revolt. At this moment in time, Louis XI could not afford to wage a larger campaign. He had just successfully concluded the takeover of Perpignan from Aragon, which now freed up some troops, but was very concerned about an anticipated invasion of France by Edward IV of England. Edward IV had promised, in the Treaty of London of July 1474, to invade France, jointly with Charles and the Duke of Brittany, by July 1475, and he seemed to want to keep his promise. He arrived in Calais in July with a considerable English army, and was greeted by Charles, who arrived directly from the Siege of Noyes with a handful of troops. Both sides were dissatisfied with the lack of full commitment from the other. The English may well have delayed their invasion because of the Siege of Noyes, and may have doubted Charles' ability for a full-scale attack, given his other preoccupations. Charles, for his part, may have doubted with some justification if Edward's invasion was for real or just a negotiation tactic. Both sides were angered by the lack of any commitment at all from the Duke of Brittany, who, not for the first time, offered far more than he ended up giving. In the end, Edward negotiated with King Louis a withdrawal back to England, in return for a marriage, alliance... 75,000 crowns for his war expenses and an annual payment of 50,000 crowns. Charles was included in the negotiations and a Franco-Burgundian nine-year truce was agreed, which both sides ended up respecting. Charles now turned his attention to Lorraine, whose duke René had just declared war on him. René was abandoned not just by Louis but also by Frederick III and was unable to provide any significant resistance. Within a matter of weeks, the whole county fell, including the capital, Nancy. Nancy's fortifications were weak and the garrison caught unprepared. When Duke René, instead of encouraging resistance, urged the citizens to surrender, they duly did, and Lorraine became Burgundian. Charles's inauguration as Duke of Lorraine in December 1475 marks perhaps the peak of his political fortunes. The integration of Lorraine into the Burgundian state fulfilled the long-desired ambition of the Dukes of Burgundy to physically link the territories of the north in the Low Countries with the Duchy of Burgundy in the south. 
Perhaps Nancy was to become the new capital of an enlarged, more unified Burgundian state, or even kingdom. For now, though, Charles continued his campaigns elsewhere. He set off in January 1476, southwards in support of Savoy against Bern and her allies. Charles was well aware of Bern's hostility and of her expansionist policies, but for a long time attempted to find a diplomatic solution. But the invasion of the region of Vaud by Bern and Fribourg in October 1475, at the same time as Charles's invasion of Lorraine, could simply not be ignored. As he led his troops southwards and crossed into Savoy, the members of the League of Constance quickly united and formed together a sizable army to resist the Burgundians. Charles faced a motley collection of small powers, a mixture of towns like Strasbourg, Basel and Bern, rural communities and two dukes, René of Lorraine and Sigmund of Austria. Bern became the leader of the alliance, with next in importance, Luzerne, which acted as a link to the other Swiss towns. The first beginning assault was on the fortifications of Granson, on Lake Neuchâtel, taken by Bern a few months before. The castle quickly capitulated, and its garrison were all murdered, either hanged on the local walnut trees or drowned in the lake. This sort of atrocity was not untypical of Charles de Bold, who was quite prepared to use such tactics of intimidation. Having already reconquered virtually all the regions of Vaud, Charles led his troops northwards along the western shore of Lake Neuchâtel to mop up any remaining pockets of resistance. On the 2nd of March 1475, the Burgundian army came across the Allied troops nearly halfway up the eastern shore of the lake in what became known as the Battle of Granson. At first, the far larger Burgundian army gained the upper hand, but the battle was turned in favour of the Allies by two events. Firstly, a Burgundian withdrawal designed by Charles to tempt the enemy further forward was misinterpreted as a retreat. Panic quickly set in and the bungled withdrawal turned into a general flight. Secondly, a second contingent of Allied forces arrived just as the Burgundians started fleeing, creating even more panic. Charles tried desperately to rally his troops, but to no avail. Although the number of casualties were not that great, the Allied victory had given them confidence and allowed them to recapture the castle at Granson. They also gained a huge booty from the victory for the Burgundians left nearly all their baggage and heavy equipment behind. As well as weapons among the great treasures of the Burgundians were tapestries, tents, diamonds and other jewels, gold and silver coins, and also Charles's throne. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Charles retreated to the town of Lausanne, where he became delayed for a couple of months by illness. When he recovered, he led his army northwards to Merton to seek revenge on Bern and her allies. Merton was a well-fortified town which effectively controlled the southwestern approaches to Bern. 
The alliance which had confronted him at Granson had meanwhile fallen in disarray, as the Swiss refused to help or even permit Bern to conquer any new territory. They made it clear that although they were willing to help garrison Freiburg, which they regarded as a fellow member of their alliance, they would prefer to evacuate Merton, which was recently conquered by Bern. In June 1475, the Burgundian army laid siege to Merton, defended by a well-prepared Bernese garrison. Charles, though, seemed to have sought a decisive battle with Bern, and so did not confine his attention to Merton alone. His forces attacked river crossings defending the city of Bern, but were repulsed. Unfortunately for Charles, this had the effect of triggering the re-mobilisation of the Allied troops, now that one of their members was being directly threatened. An army of the League of Constance was hastily assembled and made their way towards Merton, which they approached on the Saturday of 22nd of June, 1476. Contemporary sources suggest that Charles, in spite of reports of approaching enemy troops in the nearby woods, persisted in the belief that no attack was coming. More likely, Charles was kept reasonably well informed of the approach of the Confederate army and prepared an elaborate plan to meet the enemy on the ground of his choosing. He positioned his left flank artillery on a steeply sloped gorge, while in the centre the bulk of Charles's infantry were stationed behind a ditch and a palisade. These were to fight the Confederation pike and halberd units to a halt, while the Burgundian flank would then sweep around the side of the Allied soldiers, creating a killing ground from which there was no escape. On June the 21st, 1476, Charles commanded his troops into formation, in expectation of an attack. Instead, the Swiss decided to wait an additional day for reinforcements from Zurich. After waiting about six hours, Charles ordered his troops to stand down and return to camp. The next morning, Charles ordered his treasurer to pay the entire army, expecting the enemy to continue delaying. The orderly lines of the beginning army were broken up, as soldiers scattered throughout the camp, collecting their pay, eating their midday meal, and seeking shelter from the rain. It was at this moment that the Allied soldiers chose to launch their attack, charging downhill into the Burgundian position. The English archers in the Burgundian army were able to react quickly, and their arrows briefly held back the enemy. Also, the few soldiers who had been kept on the front line fought bravely, but were unable to prevent a contingent of Swiss breaking through the left flank of the defences and advancing towards the Burgundian camp. The bulk of Charles's army hurriedly tried to get back into formation and prepare for battle, but could not do so quickly enough. Realising this, Charles has ordered the army to fall back, which was interpreted as a retreat, which in turn became a rout, as all organised resistance ended. The Swiss took their prisoners, chasing down the enemy alongside the lakeside and murdering any they could lay their hands on. In all, several thousand of the Burgundian soldiers were killed, perhaps one third of Charles's entire army, maybe more. Burgundian military power was significantly diminished, but was not at risk of complete collapse, and Charles himself was unhurt. The immediate consequence of the Battle of Merton, also known as the Battle of Marat, was that if Charles had won the battle, then he would have acquired control of Savoy. Instead, Louis XI took advantage of the events by forming an alliance with the regent Yolanda, who is his sister, and so extend French influence into the duchy. As for the region of Vaud, the Allies persuaded Bern to be more content with withdrawing from the region, returning the region to Savoy, with the exception of Merton, and one or two other places which Bern could keep. As at Grenson, at the Battle of Merton, Charles had suffered a significant defeat at the hands of the Swiss. In both battles, his troops were outnumbered and caught by surprise, and both times Charles made serious errors of judgment, apparently because of overconfidence and failure to take advice. 
An additional reason for the failure of the Burgundian army could be their mixed composition, made up of French-speaking Burgundians, Flemish-speaking soldiers from Flanders and Holland, plus English archers and Italian mercenaries. At first glance, the Allied army looks equally mixed, but they were united in a sense of common purpose, which Charles the Bold's army lacked. After his defeat, Charles camped on the border of Burgundy and Savoy between July and September and considered his next moves. Undoubtedly, he most wished to revenge himself on the Swiss, but he also had urgent matters to attend to in Lorraine, where there was growing resistance to his recent takeover of the duchy. His capital, Nancy, was being besieged by troops loyal to the ousted Duke, René, but Charles delayed in responding, assuming that the matter was being dealt with by his lieutenant in Lorraine, the Count of Campobasso. Instead, the city fell unexpectedly on the 6th of October, 1476, when the English contingent in the garrison mutinied. Charles arrived with his army at the town five days later, no doubt regretting not arriving sooner. After losing much of his army at the Battle of Merton, Charles was short of good soldiers. He had available 10,000 men, whom he brought from Savoy, plus the troops under Count of Campobasso, who had stood by while Nancy was captured, plus 8,000 reinforcements from the Netherlands. Duke René, on the other hand, had few troops available himself, so he appealed for help from his allies in the League of Constance. Meanwhile, Charles, ignoring the advice of his leading captains, who advised a withdrawal to Luxembourg for the winter, marched to Nancy and set siege to the city on the 22nd of October, 1476. Unlike in the previous year, Charles did not take the trouble to secure the hold of Lorraine before making an attempt on Nancy. Therefore, as the siege dragged on into November and December, and Charles's force became weakened or depleted by hunger and disease, the garrisons of nearby towns lower to René became increasingly bolder and more aggressive. As in Noyes, Charles's determination to not give up the siege appears as overconfident and stubborn. Despite the harsh winter conditions, Charles perhaps calculated that he needed to make a breakthrough before René had time to get together a relief army. He had nothing to fear at the time from either Louis XI or Frederick III. In fact, Charles was now on good terms with the German Emperor after his only offspring, Mary, engaged Frederick's son, Maximilian, on the 1st of December, 1476. As for the Swiss, they were under pressure to make peace with Charles by Pope Sixtus IV, who optimistically hoped to convince Charles the Bold to go on crusade. Therefore, most Swiss towns decided not to participate, and it was mostly independent mercenaries who answered René's call. By late December, René had gathered some ten to 12,000 men from Lorraine and the Lower Union. Joined by a Swiss army of some 10,000, he advanced through the snow-covered landscape and reached Nancy from the southeast early on the morning of the 5th of January. René was also joined by the Count of Campobasso, who defected from Charles, was accompanied by his 300 men-at-arms. The Count's lack of loyalty to Charles helps explain why he had earlier been so ineffective at defending Burgundian interests in Lorraine. Today, the town of Nancy has spread over the entire area of the battlefield, replacing the woods and streams which used to be there. In the 15th century, it was a medium-sized walled town in a shallow valley through which flowed the river Murita. Charles, on becoming aware of the relief army's approach, evacuated the bulk of his army from the trenches around Nancy. He ordered them to take up a strong defensive position south of Nancy on a heavily wooded slope in the narrowest part of the valley down which he knew the Swiss would have to advance. The exact numbers available to Charles are unknown, but following losses incurred during the siege were now significantly outnumbered by the enemy. 
It therefore would have been more advisable in hindsight for Charles to withdraw his army. But not for the first time he rejected advice from his captains and went ahead with his original plans. Although many details of the Battle of Nancy, 1477, remain confused, the main events can be soundly established thanks to the survival of eyewitness accounts from both sides. While the beginning left wing was positioned along the river Murata, his right wing rested on an area of thick woods, while in the centre were the infantry and 30 field guns. Assessing the beginning position, René and his Swiss commanders decided against a frontal assault. Instead, turning to their left and advancing with difficulty through woods and ice-cold streams, the vanguard of the Allied army manoeuvred to attack Charles's right flank. Meanwhile, a second contingent made their way over thickly wooded snow-covered slopes towards the Burgundian left flank. Such manoeuvrings were not expected by Charles, so soon after midday, when the Allies emerged from the forest, the Burgundians were caught by surprise. To the background of three loud blasts from Swiss horns, the Allies charged downhill into the enemy positions, giving the Burgundian artillery no time to be retrained on the attackers. Charles's army quickly began to collapse from an onslaught from both sides, were either cut down or thrown back into confusion. In desperation, the Burgundian soldiers attempted to flee for their lives, but escape was not easy. The direct route north down the Murta Valley was blocked by the traitor Campobasso and his men. The wealthier Burgundians were captured and held for ransom, but others were killed if they did not drown themselves trying to cross the half-frozen river. Even those who managed to flee the immediate area were in grave peril. Richard Vaughan quotes a contemporary account, the Chronique de Met. Quote, on the next day and three days afterwards, the peasants were still killing the fugitives along the roads as far as the town of Metz. One found nothing but people killed and stripped by the roads. At that time it was freezing and it was more horribly cold than ever, so that many of those who hid died of hunger, of cold and of discomfort. End quote. The chronicler goes on to say, quote, The battle was indeed a woeful catastrophe for the ruler of Burgundy, who was then the most feared and redoubtable prince one could think of, and also the best loved by his subjects. This was well shown by the fact that they would not believe in his death, especially the people of Artois and several others of the Burgundians, for they obstinately believed that he had escaped from the battle into Germany. End quote. In fact, it took two days of searching through the many corpses before the body of the 44-year-old duke was found. It had by then been stripped of clothes and jewels, and the face had been horribly mauled by wild animals. The corpse was only identifiable by the long fingernails and previous battle scars on his body. Apparently Charles's horse had failed to clear a stream in the flight. He had fallen and had been dispatched with a single blow to the head with a Swiss halberd. Charles the Bold, or the Rash, of Burgundy, had put together a formidable army and was in many ways an innovative and clever commander but in the end his inability to admit and rectify his own errors cost him not only his own life, but the survival of the state which he and his three immediate predecessors had worked so hard to build up. Charles showed great foresight and innovation in the development of his armies, but he failed to understand another great change occurring around him, the growing confidence of a new urban class and their growing sense of independence. It was they, rather than the princes like Sigmund or René, who formed the backbone to Burgundian rule. Richard Vaughan writes how, quote, All the way from Cologne and Frankfurt to Lyon and Geneva over the Alps to Italy, Charles de Bold's activities, besides menacing the independence of princes, threatened the very existence of towns, and more important, interrupted what is the lifeblood of any urban system, the free movement of goods and communities. End quote.
and although Charles was often skilful in his use of diplomacy among fellow nobles, his efforts at expanding Burgundy created many enemies, especially among the numerous local powers. As for the Swiss, their performance during the campaign bolstered their reputation as superb mercenary soldiers and led to their increased use across Europe. King Louis XI of France, the universal spider, without directly getting involved militarily himself, achieved one of his main goals, that of preventing the emergence of a powerful Burgundian state on his northern and eastern borders. He failed, however, in his other goal of incorporating the Burgundian lands under the French crown. It was his aggressive policies which had persuaded Emperor Frederick III and Duke Charles of Burgundy to arrange a crucial marriage alliance. Shortly before his death, Charles agreed to the betrothal of his only child, Mary of Burgundy, to the Emperor's son, Maximilian, with great repercussions for the future balance of political power in Europe. For one, it transformed the fortunes of the Habsburgs, who went on to stay as emperors until the eventual fall of the Holy Roman Empire in the 19th century. Another consequence would be that the rivalry of France and the Habsburgs would come to dominate early modern Europe. The fall of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy is in many ways a story of what-ifs. What if the Battle of Nancy or the other battles of the Burgundian Wars had gone differently? Then it is perfectly possible that they could have created a coherent state in Central Europe, which could have survived in one form or another until today. But they did not. And other states also fell, as well as Constantinople, another was the Muslim state of Granada in Spain. I will release a series of episodes on the Ford of Granada in patreon.com in the upcoming weeks. The next battle on the regular pod feed will be the Battle of Fornova of 1495, in which first I will be explaining the background, which will be covering the period of the Italian Renaissance. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could give it a review on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. It would help a lot. I also recommend taking a look at the Facebook page for the podcast, which provides images and maps which act as an accompaniment to the podcast on the Burgundian Wars. Thank you for listening to History of Europe Key Battles. Until next time, all the best and goodbye. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic t-shirts, soft, structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA, with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code GRATEFULAG23.